Hey guys, Jody Holland here. Welcome to the Become the Leader podcast, where we help you become the kind of leader that you would follow. Today, I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite books of all time, the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. If you've been in business for more than a minute, you've probably ended up working for a leader that you wished you had never met. The kind of leaders that we want to follow have built the right skills, built the right relationships, and focus heavily on building a great culture. The Become the Leader podcast helps prepare you to be the leader that others want to follow. Hill had published this book back in 1937, and to this day, it's still one of the best-selling self-help books of all times because the principles within the book, I believe, are so practical. There are 13 principles that you have to master in order to be successful at any endeavor that you wish to pursue in your life. Those principles are desire, faith, auto-suggestion, specialized knowledge, imagination, organized planning, decision-making, persistence, the power of the mastermind or who you surround yourself with, the mystery of sex transmutation, which is a very interesting take on creativity, the subconscious mind, the brain itself, and then your intuition or the sixth sense. So I'm going to take you through just a summary of each of these. This may be just a little bit longer than what we've had in the past, but I think you'll really enjoy it. The first is desire. Of all the principles of Think and Grow Rich, the principle of desire is no doubt the most important of all. For this reason, Hill placed it at the very beginning of his book. To understand what Hill meant by desire, it's important to forget all connotations of wistful dreaming that the world may hold for you or anything like that. Hill's desire is not about wishing. Wishes often don't come true because they're not backed up by action or intention. It's just about wanting something. When you as an individual truly desire something, you have a plan for how you're going to get there. You don't back down until you achieve that outcome that you're looking for. Wishing is often this undefined or nondescript committal of, I'd really like to someday. But desire, when you have desire, you ensure that your wants become action-oriented, and push you in the right direction. Desire turns everything from just a, a hope or a pipe dream into a plan to actually get there. Hill felt that it was important to establish that when a goal is to be achieved, you have to have an exchange of value. So when we say, I desire to have X amount of dollars, or I desire to be one of the greatest speakers on the planet, in exchange for that, I will give. He was very, very clear going back to his studies of Ralph Waldo Emerson that the law of compensation was absolutely true. You have to give something in order to get something of equivalent or greater value. When your objective is to always serve your customer, always serve your client, then you find that they want to give you money. So you have to figure out if you want to have $50,000 in the next 90 days, how do you create $150,000 worth of value for other people? The person who is kind of well-versed in self-help literature, you tend to recognize the advice that you have to really lock your mind in on who you are in your better state. In the desire section, I think Hill was talking about the state of being. So Ziegler said, you've got to be, then you'll do, then you'll have. When you desire, you see yourself as that future state as if it was already real. 
the psychological importance of having a clear goal for one's happiness and for achieving whatever their goals are in life is undisputed. We call it a mission statement or a vision statement or whatever you want in business, but the reality is it's an identity statement. When you establish that you desire something, you're saying, here's who I am at my very best. The second principle was faith. Napoleon Hill was not a religious man, but he saw the value of faith and considered it next only to desire and achieving success. What Hill calls faith is a type of self-confidence that borders on religiosity. It was a principle that he once learned from his mentor, the still magnate millionaire Andrew Carnegie. He said, what happens when a man knows what he wants, has a plan, puts it into action, and meets with a failure? A young and inexperienced Hill once asked Carnegie, doesn't that destroy his confidence? But Carnegie's response was classic. I believe that every failure carries within it, in the circumstance of the failure itself, the seed of an equivalent advantage. If you examine the lives of truly great leaders, you will discover that their success is an exact proportion to their mastery of failures. Life has a way of developing strength and wisdom in individuals through temporary defeat. Carnegie's response was so good. He helped Hill really understand it isn't about not having problems. It's about seeing past the problem into the state of beingness that you imagined in your desire. To have faith is to understand that there isn't a point where you quit chasing whatever your dream is. Most people aren't going to believe that every failure has an equivalent advantage when they're overcome with adversity. What Hill went on to say is, what, what does one do if the experience destroys one's self-confidence? The best way to guard against being overwhelmed by failure, Carnegie responded, is to discipline the mind to meet failure before it arrives. To this end, disciplining the mind to meet failure before it arrives, Hill developed a self-confidence formula in five steps to be committed to memory and repeated aloud. But more importantly, Hill felt that faith would come on its own to whoever mastered the other 12 of his principles. Whether this is true or not, the importance of psychology in the shape of self-confidence, encouragement, and positive language for achievement is definitely well known today. Autosuggestion is the third principle. The idea of autosuggestion is familiar to most people today whether in the form of affirmations or visualizations or a vision board or whatever it is that you put together that helps you understand who you are at your best, but to see it in your mind's eye and to make it real for you. Autosuggestion is just a technique of helping you reinforce over and over and over again exactly who you are at your best. As Hill once put it, if you do not see great riches in your imagination, you will never see them in your bank balance. Hill's technique of auto-suggestion is pretty traditional. He suggests repeating the mission statement aloud morning and evening while visualizing the goal in mind. If you desire to have money, see yourself in possession of that money. If you desire your business to serve a certain number of customers, see yourself serving that number of customers. Hill emphasizes something which is often neglected in other success literature. When visualizing that which is to be attained, he also wants you to visualize the rendering of the service or the good that you'll give in return. Again, law of compensation. The two sides of the coin 
have to be uniquely connected. You cannot have a coin with only one side. The two sides of the coin are what you give and what you get. But the side that you should look at first is what do I give in order to get the thing that I want? With auto-suggestion, my addition to that would be in the, the morning time when you very first wake up, literally the first five minutes that you're awake, you should visualize your day being that perfect day and going exactly like you want it to go and moving you towards that end game that you see for yourself. And at night when you lay down, you should feel into that life that you desire. So the feeling into it is, what would it feel like if? That's what you want to ask yourself. What would it feel like if I had the money that I want? I had the team that I wanted. I had the success that I wanted. So in the morning, you work on the logical part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and at night, you work on the emotional part of the brain, the limbic center. By hitting the two sides of the brain, the logical part of the brain pushes into the subconscious the idea of the right day in the right direction, and then the subconscious cultivates it when you back it with the right emotion. The next principle is specialized knowledge. The fourth principle of Think and Grow Rich may strike the current readers as incredibly modern. Most recent books, and indeed blogs and podcasts and everything else, help people understand that in order to get recognition, you have to be better at your micro niche than anyone else. You know, you start with going to school. We get our public education. We learn to read, write, and do arithmetic and all the other things that go along with that. But what people pay you for is your ability to differentiate. Most of Hill's principles, just like specialized knowledge, go further than their modern counterparts. Uh, Hill expresses the necessity for having a niche. He says, no man grows rich on what he calls general knowledge. On the other hand, by specialized knowledge, Hill also means the actual knowledge necessary to fill that niche. Not just knowing things that are different, but having, having the capacity to know the things that are different and that make you stand apart and become unique and that solve a unique problem. Unlike a lot of writers in that niche genre, Hill didn't feel that it was necessary to start with what you already know and work from there. Instead, he suggests that you should decide on what kind of specialized knowledge you need and then see how you can find it. You may already have the knowledge necessary from education or experience, but it is possible that you need to educate yourself further in some way. It's also possible that you may acquire the specialized knowledge that you need by surrounding yourself with knowledgeable men and women who can advise you when necessary. Hill no doubt admired men like Henry Ford, who was no man of education himself, but who purported to have the answer to every conceivable question with the aid of his network. That's the reason, leading up to a future one, you surround yourself with great people. The next idea was the concept of imagination. It's been said that man can create anything which he can imagine. Hill writes and, and makes the point that what the man of mind can conceive and believe, it can also achieve. You have to have imagination. So the desire is the first expression of imagination. The faith is imagining moving past any of the, the struggles that might be there. 
going from faith into auto-suggestion is continuously imagining moving in the right direction. The specialized knowledge is imagining what is required in order to solve a customer problem. Imagination itself is, is the basis for creating the life that you desire. Hill divided imagination into two distinct types, synthetic and creative. Synthetic imagination is used in arranging old concepts, ideas, or plans into new combinations. Nothing new is created in this way, Hill writes. Here, one may be inclined to argue with them. If something never before seen is built from previously known parts, using the prior experience and knowledge of the inventor, is that not creation of something new? It may well be that Hill would argue that it isn't and that the act of creation was the moment when the inventor first imagined what he wanted to achieve. Hill's concept of creative imagination is closely linked with other concepts that Hill returns to, such as infinite intelligence, an idea closely resembling the wider interpretation of Jung's collective unconscious, or kind of a sort of universal world mind that all humans can tap into. I think of it from the research of Dr. Keith Sawyer on creativity and imagination that you would have small C and capital C creativity. Small C creativity is rearranging what somebody else did. You might still make some money off of it. You might make things better, but a fundamental shift in how something previous worked that is new, novel, and solves a better problem, that is capital C creativity, as well as something that's never been seen before would be capital C creativity. Uh, when Steve Jobs and Johnny Ives changed the or introduced the iPhone with a large screen, it solved the problem of not being able to see the screen and made the phone more functional. They added to that iTunes, which solved another problem, which simplified the organizing of data back and forth, which had not been solved with any other device, including the BlackBerry, for those that are, are thinking, but the BlackBerry was around as a smartphone. It was, and it had an app store, but it was a much more complicated process. It was not plug, play, and go. The next of the principles from Think and Grow Rich is organized planning. You're engaged in an undertaking of major importance to you. To be sure of success, you have to have plans which are faultless. That was one of the concepts that Hill explained. The concept of organized planning is so integral to Hill's teachings that he embedded it in his very first lesson on desire. The necessity of having a plan in order to successfully see something through is the uh, equivalent of knowing the difference between I want to go somewhere and I want to go to this specific place starting from this other specific place. Hoping for something never gets us where we want to go. Uh, I think of planning from the structure and the, what kind of the way that he talked about it of we have to know our start, we have to know our end, and then you have to use your creative imagination to think, if I'm already at this end state, what were the steps that I followed? So you think from the end back to the beginning. You organize who needs to be involved, what the skills are that you're going to need, how you're going to make things work, that the organized plan is the step-by-step -step guide that you can calendar out. A leader must be many things, and many of the qualities of leadership are directly lifted from Hill's earlier work. The law of success is one of those principles. A leader, according to Hill, has courage, self-control, a strong sense of justice, 
uh, definiteness of decision and plans, a pleasing personality with sympathy and understanding, mastery of detail, a habit of doing more than paid for, and a willingness to cooperate and to assume responsibility. When you put all of that together, you start to understand there is a very specific plan that we have to create that will create an outcome. Model what other successful people have done. So you can learn on the two sides of imagination, what were the steps they followed to get to the place that I wanted to get to? If you don't need to reinvent the wheel, don't reinvent it. But imagine yourself along that same path and being the person that would do the things that would get you there. If nobody's gotten there before, then you want to make sure that you step back from it and go, can I see myself in that state? Yes. Great. I'm going to imagine myself there. I'm going to dream about it. I'm going to feel into it. And then I'm going to think backwards. What did I do that got me there? I would present it as ZPA zones of accountability within your organization processes that would get you to where you want to be and daily actions that make the processes work flawlessly. If you can get those things mapped out, you've created an organized plan. Decision is the next of the principles. Hill's principle of decision is closely related to his high value of leadership. Leaders know how to reach decisions promptly and how to stay behind their decision. Such people, Hill writes, quote unquote, know what they want and generally get it. That's because the quote unquote, the world has the habit of making room for the man whose words and actions show that he knows where he is going. There are far too many people that dream about where they're going, but have not made the decision to give the action required to get there. The more important lesson may lie in what Hill says about indecision. He says, indecision is a habit that usually begins in youth. The habit takes on permanency as the youth goes through the grade school, high school, and even on to college without definiteness of purpose. When you are definite in your aims in life, you become unstoppable. The decision is who you will be. You shouldn't strive to make decisions quickly and firmly and then simply act like you're trying to be a leader. Instead, you should strive towards being able to make decisions in such a manner that demonstrates you've done your research, you identify the gap from where you are to where you want to be, and you make a decision to bridge the gap. That ties in with your organized planning. You don't want to make decisions that don't support the place that you want to go. Once you've made a decision, what Hill talks about on that staying consistent in the decision is just because there's a hiccup doesn't mean that you should quit. You have to stay true to moving towards that destination. You will probably adjust your path in getting to the place you want to go, but don't give up on the dream of who you are. The reason that persistence, the next quality, follows decision is there's so many times that we can get derailed. Just like you did not learn how to walk by giving up when you first fell, you do not grow rich or successful by letting momentary failure stand in your way. Persistence is a state of mind that has to be cultivated. In a sense, it comes from Hill's principle of faith. At the same time, persistence is as much an action as it is a principle, and that action helps to reinforce faith. In developing persistence, Hill prescribed, quote-unquote, a definite purpose backed by a burning desire for its fulfillment, a definite plan, friendship and alliance with encouraging people, and a willingness to shut out negative and discouraging influences. To me, 
That's advice that still is just as relevant today as it was in 1937. The mastermind is the next principle. The concept of the mastermind is integral to all of Hill's writings, but it's also one of the most uh, one that most skeptics have difficulties with. At its core, Hill described the mastermind as the quote unquote coordination of knowledge and effort in a spirit of harmony between two or more people for the attainment of a definite purpose. That in itself is not very controversial, but the mastermind principle goes beyond mere interaction and cooperation. It describes a parapsychological phenomenon of spiritual forces, which Hill often described by saying that, quote, no two minds ever come together without thereby creating a third invisible, intangible force, which may be likened to a third mind. Carl Jung, the founder of analytical psychology, described this as the universal mind. Uh, Jung described the conscious, the, the subconscious, personal subconscious or a personal unconscious, and the collective unconscious. When you think about that, that third mind that Jung described is what Hill was talking about. By creating such a third mind, the minds within the group become something more than the sum of their parts and greater things can be achieved. Much of the skepticism towards this philosophy may stem from the mysticism embedded in Hill's language. The teaching themsel teachings themselves are found in more recent works with a less spiritual bend. For example, Stephen Covey's extremely popular The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Covey's chapter on interdependence is the coordination of knowledge of the mastermind. Uh, I don't think that any of us argue that we need great people around us. And I would say if you've been in business for very long, you understand that when you can create the harmonious alignment of, of thoughts, values, and efforts within your team, you are leading an amazing team. There is nothing more frustrating than recognizing that when you have your team together, let's say five people on your team, and you have that one person that's fighting against the team, what they're trying to do is destroy that mastermind. You have to be adamant about protecting yourself and protecting who you surround yourself with. You will be the average of your five closest relationships. Make sure those relationships are good. The next principle and the one that confuses a lot of people is what Hill called sex transmutation. In kind of a Freudian way, Hill identified the libido with vitality and drive and creativity. The emotion of sex contains a secret of creative ability, he writes. Destroy the sex glands, whether in man or beast, and you have removed the major source of action. For proof of this, observe what happens when any animal, after it has been castrated, interacts with animals they were formerly connected with. A bull becomes as docile as a cow after it has been altered sexually. As he, as he went on into this, what he was trying to describe is you have to have a really intense emotional reason for pursuing the things that you're pursuing. So the way that I understand it and going back to uh, humanistic psychology and analytical psychology and blending these things together, this is creative expression. There, at, at the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, one of the founders of humanistic uh, psychological thought, he said that our basic physiological survival, which included sex, that's at the base of the pyramid. We will strive to fulfill our self-expression. So sex transmutation, think of it at the core of your identity. There is this, 
greatness that wants to get out. When you use that energy of greatness of I will pursue with all of my vigor as if my survival depended upon it, exactly what I want to accomplish in this life, that's sex transmutation. The subconscious is next. Controlling the subconscious is the goal of auto-suggestion, but it is also a principle in itself because the conscious is the is of utmost importance when it comes to maintaining desire, faith, and persistence. Positive and negative emotions cannot occupy the mind at the same time. One or the other must dominate. It is your responsibility to make sure that positive emotions constitute the dominating influence of your mind. This self-talk and this, this way that we program our emotional states becomes critically important for the subconscious creation of what you desire in your life. Three things that you can do, this is not in Think and Grow Rich, but this is kind of my addition of psychology to this. One is control your physical presence. Put yourself in a positive state physically. Hold yourself in a superhero pose or, or smile for two minutes or do something that controls your physical presence. The second is control what you put into your mind. This goes along with auto-suggestion. You put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. So put good stuff in on a consistent basis because you're programming the operating system of your life, the subconscious. Third thing is control how you talk to yourself. When you talk to yourself in a positive manner, when something goes wrong, you go, obviously it wasn't what I planned for, but I will come up with a plan that will get around this and I will not give up on my goal. When you do those three things, you put yourself in a much better state. Uh, Hill, he kind of delves into the values and describes the seven desirable emotions as desire, faith, love, sex, enthusiasm, romance, and hope. And then the seven undesirable emotions as fear, jealousy, hatred, revenge, greed, superstition, and anger. So think about the back and forth of those. Uh, when the negative emotions are winning, it puts us in a negative, depressed state, and we lose our ability to act. When the positive emotions are winning, we gain our ability to act and move in that right direction. The brain is the next concept. Napoleon Hill's view of the brain ties closely to his idea of infinite intelligence. The collective world mind can, according to Hill's theory, be tapped into by each individual human mind. He likened the brain to a radio, both with a sending and a receiving component. The vibrations of other minds, Hill wrote, quote unquote, are picked up from the ether, and we may all make our own signal stronger through positive emotion. A lot of other studies have been done on this since Hill wrote about the brain in this way. Dr. Dawson Church has some great stuff on it. Pam Grout, one of my favorite authors in the self-help world, has some great stuff. In her book, E-Squared, she actually creates a, a number of experiments to demonstrate that this infinite intelligence is real. One of them that I love was you were supposed to go out on your front porch and just say, I want this person to call me. Hey, and you say that person's name, you should call me. And you're supposed to do that you know, a dozen different times over a 24-hour window and then see what happened. It was crazy when I did that experiment because I went on my front porch and I, I have a friend named Mike and I said his full name. I said, Mike, you need to call me. We need to talk. Mike, I know you hear me. Give me a call. 
the way that it was described in the 1980s with Dr. Richard Mandler and jo Dr. John Grinder in neurolinguistic programming is yogurt knows yogurt. So the things that we are connected with, once our brains have been connected and we have this mastermind, then we will always have this connection. So the brain is ascending and receiving, but you've got to, you've got to keep raising your comfort zone in order to receive more of what life has to offer you. A lot of skeptics have no doubt in their mind that this is just craziness. But the research out there from very reputable institutions like UCLA, MIT, Harvard, and so on, have demonstrated that there is a psychological phenomenon of connected minds. Uh, scientists today doing research on magnetic fields have shown that around the human body, 15 feet in every direction, you can feel the emotional energy field of the person. Now, I, I can't see auras and, you know, see the things where you're like, oh, that, that person is blue. But you have walked into a room when your boss was in a really foul mood. And before you even knew what was going on, you knew it was something bad. That's what Hill was talking about. That's what Dr. Dr. Dawson Church talks about, Bernard Hayes talks about. All of these guys have done research in this area. They talk about that aspect. The final principle is the sixth sense or intuition. According to Hill, proof will come when the reader has mastered all of the principles. Uh, in Hill's time, the readers were predominantly male, uh, but they would, they would struggle to understand this because it was believed at that time that women had intuitions and men had logic and proof. The reality is we as humans have intuition and we have logic and proof. So it's not a gender-based thing. It's just that most of the people who would read books, particularly self-help books in Hill's time, were, were men. At that time, only 9% of women were in the paid so labor force. I've studied face reading for That's a number of That's part of the reason there's such a difference. Who the sixth are, sense is a principle which cannot be practiced, nor can it be disproved. Like with Hill's other people, mystical theories, the reader has to choose the left side of either you're going to accept that there is an intuitive aspect of who you are, or there isn't. the right side of the face, and what sense do you get of that person? Then look at the entire face and determine the sense that you get. The sixth sense is simply making the unconscious conscious, the way that Carl Jung described the journey of life. Our primary objective is to bring what isn't in awareness into awareness. So as we learn to stack these subtle cues and create these bridges to understanding, we create the sixth sense. We all have the capacity to develop our sixth sense. Uh, whether it's research from MIT, Harvard, or, or wherever else, there's so many times that they've looked at research and going, but how do you know that about people? The universal mind ties in with developed awareness to create that sixth sense. Hill described it in a way that it was very difficult to prove or disprove what the sixth sense was. Research that's happened since then really does come back to creating that same understanding that Hill already had. So I would kind of challenge you, think about how you know what you know when you interact with other people. What were the cues? Try to, try to pay attention. Oh, because they walked this way or because they looked like this, that's why I thought that. 
the sixth sense, the more you develop that, the more it creates that opportunity for your success. So I would kind of challenge you. I want you to think about all 13 of these principles. If you applied these 13 principles and like really study and apply them, how different would your life become? I would argue and I would challenge you as a leader that you would change the game in your business when you pay attention to Think and Grow Rich. So I'm Jody Holland. I hope you've enjoyed this episode a little bit longer, but I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Become the Leader. I do believe these 13 principles help you become the kind of leader that other people want to follow, and I can't wait to see you on the next episode. Until then.